Jesus' ministry than not to repent. Because from the very beginning, repentance is precisely what Jesus has been calling for. Repentance is what Jesus' ministry is all about. In Epiphany, we read for several weeks from Luke 3, and we heard about John the Baptist proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and warning the crowds, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And we heard how Jesus himself accepted baptism from John in the Jordan, and how the heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And we anticipated how, after his baptism, Jesus, the Son of Adam, the Son of God, would go out into the desert and be tempted by the devil, and would overcome the devil, as the first Adam failed to do. In Matthew's Gospel, from which we read today, Jesus' ministry begins the same way. Matthew tells us how John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is close at hand. And after Jesus' baptism and temptation in the wilderness, what happens next? When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is close at hand. So from the very beginning of his ministry, onward till the end, Jesus proclaims exactly what John had been proclaiming before him, repentance. And notice where his ministry takes place. He leaves Nazareth, the village where he grew up, and establishes his home base in the city of Capernaum by the sea. In Montreal, where I'm from, we have a modest-sized hill in the middle of the city that we call the mountain. <laughs> and the city of Capernaum by the sea is a bit like that. The, the Sea of Galilee is not exactly the Mediterranean, right? It's a lake and really a pretty puny lake. And the city of Capernaum is really a small town, not a proper city. There were some big cities in Galilee, and Capernaum isn't one of them. So Capernaum is, of course, not the center of the world, not from the Roman imperial perspective, not from the Jewish perspective, and not even from the Galilean perspective. But this small town does become the center of Jesus' world for the last few years of his mortal life. And from his base in Capernaum, according to a summary statement in chapter 4, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. They brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And in the next six chapters of Matthew's gospel, this is exactly what we see Jesus doing over and over again. He calls disciples, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, and James and John, all Galilean fishermen. At the top of a hill somewhere in Galilee, he preaches to the crowds, and they're astonished at the things he says. On the way down from that hill, he heals a leper. Back in Capernaum, he heals the paralyzed son of a centurion, without needing even to touch the boy. He visits Peter's house, <coughs> heals Peter's mother-in-law, and then spends all evening healing and exercising all that the people can bring to him there. 
he sails across the Lake of Galilee and casts demons out of two men there. Then he returns to what Matthew calls his own city, that is, Capernaum, where he not only heals, but also forgives a man who cannot walk. A woman whom no doctor could cure of a discharge of blood is healed by touching Jesus' robe in faith. Jesus takes a dead little girl by the hand, and she rises again to life. He heals two blind men. He casts a demon out of a mute man. All this in Capernaum alone. Then he sends out his twelve disciples, this is in chapter 10, giving them his own authority to exercise and to heal into all the towns of Galilee. And he charges them to proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is close at hand. (coughs) And so the whole little region of Galilee is blessed with the presence of the Son of God, Mm. healing disease, exercising evil, teaching the crowds, and by all of these means, proclaiming the kingdom. And to proclaim the kingdom is also to proclaim repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is close at hand. The kingdom of heaven is close at hand. Therefore, repent. The people of Galilee heard John say this when they went out to him at Jordan and received the baptism that would make way for Jesus. They heard the disciples say it as they went through the towns, healing and exercising in Jesus' name. And they heard Jesus himself say it. And not only say it, but also show it in every part of his ministry. All of the mighty works that Jesus performs point to the nearness of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is simply the place where God's will is done. And that place is the person of Jesus. God wills to free all people from the devil. So Jesus casts out devils. God desires to free all people from the paralysis of sin. So Jesus forgives the sins of the man he also healed from paralysis. God desires to free all people from death. So Jesus restores the little girl to life. God desires that all people should love each other perfectly. So Jesus preaches love of neighbor and of enemy, forgiveness of those who wrong us, generosity towards those in need. God desires to restore not only the relationships between people, but between us and the rest of the created world. So Jesus heals human bodies from disease, and he calms the winds and the waves that threaten his disciples in the boat. And in order that all of this can take place, God desires most of all that all people should come to him, from whom alone they can receive everything they need. And so Jesus preaches childlike reliance on the Father, and he blesses those who put their trust in him. The kingdom of heaven is close at hand. When Jesus is in town, this is literally true. You can reach out and touch the kingdom of heaven, just as the bleeding woman did and was healed. So with all these wonderful works that Jesus is doing among the people, it's perhaps no surprise that so far in Matthew's gospel, most people really like Jesus. There are a couple of exceptions. Some scribes are worried that he's a blasphemer, and those people whose pigs he cast those demons into begged him to leave their side of the lake. But the complaints of these few pale in comparison to his great popularity. 
His fame spread throughout all Syria, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. He's ministering only in the small towns of rural Galilee, but people are coming from all around to see him and to hear him and to bring their sick to him. He began by calling a few disciples, but now some of the people, including at least one scribe, are approaching him, asking to become his disciples. When he sees the size of the crowds following him in chapter 9, he tells his disciples to ask God to send more laborers into his harvest, because the helpers he already has are not enough for crowds this large. So Jesus is popular. Many of the people are attracted to him. Nobody is trying to kill him. But as we begin Lent and look forward to Holy Week, we are well aware that this will change. And of course, Jesus knows it too. When he sends out the Twelve in chapter 10, he predicts that some of the towns to which he sends them will not receive them. He predicts that his disciples will one day be beaten in synagogues and dragged before royal courts for judgment. And for the first time, he mentions the cross in chapter 10, verse 38. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Jesus already knows where he's going, and he knows that no one who is not willing to take up a cross can follow him there. So even at the height of his popularity, with huge crowds following him, with people coming from all around the greater Syrian region to see him, with people begging him to take them on as disciples, Jesus can see it coming, that these same crowds will turn against him, that these same disciples will abandon him, and that he will be killed on a cross. Meanwhile, the crowds are astonished and intrigued by his strange teaching. They're excited to receive healing from him. No doubt, some of them are even praising God for the mighty works they see Jesus doing. And that's great. They should do that. But it's not enough. That's not what Jesus has been calling for this whole time. Astonishment, approval, and even praise are not by themselves the right response to the coming of the kingdom of heaven. No, the kingdom of heaven is close at hand, therefore repent. But Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. The first denunciation is directed at Chorazin and Bethsaida, two towns on the north end of the lake. We don't have any specific stories in Matthew about Jesus' mighty works in these towns, but they must have been among the towns of Galilee in which he had healed, exercised, taught, and called disciples. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Tyre and Sidon were two great mercantile cities on the Mediterranean coast, and they had been enemies of God's people since ancient times, seizing treasures from Jerusalem and capturing Jews in battle to sell them as slaves abroad. 
So many of the Old Testament prophets declared God's judgment on these cities. Mm. For example, in Zechariah 9, we read, The Lord has an eye on Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. So Tyre and Sidon are symbols of greed, exploitation, decadent wealth, and hostility to God and to his people. Jesus didn't proclaim the kingdom in Tyre and Sidon, these two great cities on the great Mediterranean Sea, centers of naval power and maritime trade. But if he had, he says, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Instead, Jesus went to Chorazin and Bethsaida, two little towns on the tiny sea of Galilee, and did his mighty works among the farmers and the fishermen there. But they did not repent. And you, Capernaum, Jesus goes on, will you be exalted to heaven? In the person of Jesus, the king of heaven has humbled himself and come down to you. He has lived among you and adopted you as his own hometown. Through him, you have seen God's will made manifest around you. Some of you have been freed from the torment of demons. Some of you have been forgiven your sins. Some of you have been healed from disease, even raised from the dead. God's good will for you has been revealed to you. Will you now live according to that will? The kingdom of heaven is close at hand. Will you now enter into it? He has brought heaven down to you. Will you now be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades because you would not repent. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Who could be more inhospitable to God's message than the people of Sodom, whose response to a visitation by two angels was to try and attack their bodies? Only the people of Capernaum, whose response to the presence of God's own Son was to admire him, to crowd around him, to find him astonishing, even to praise God for his mighty works, but not to repent. If, like the people of Galilee, we admire Jesus, but do not repent, if we watch him exercise demons, but do not let him drive out the evil in our own hearts and lives. If we applaud him for forgiving sins, but refuse to forgive others ourselves. If we watch him raise the dead, but do not turn away from the things that kill our own spirit. If we listen in astonishment to his strange teaching, but do not obey him, then we have already rejected him and his kingdom. Even at the height of his popularity, Jesus can see his crucifixion coming a mile away. Because the decision to crucify Jesus starts with the decision to admire him, but not to repent. 
And we should tremble to think about this. Because we have read all about the very same mighty works that Jesus did in Galilee. His exorcisms, his healings, his preaching, and his proclamation of the kingdom. And we are witnesses to even mightier works than the people of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum had seen. We know what Jesus went on to do. How he died to atone for our sin. Rose again to give us eternal life. Ascended into heaven to, pre to prepare a place for us there. Sent the Spirit to change our hearts. And promised to return and to restore all things on earth. These mighty works were not only signs of the kingdom. By them, Jesus established the kingdom. Mm -hmm. By them, Jesus has opened wide for us the entrance into the kingdom and invited us in, so that all that is left for us to do is to walk in with Jesus' help. If we know about all these things, but do not repent, if we read and heard all about God's will revealed in Jesus, and if we approve that will with our words, but do not submit our own lives to that will, if we praise him for the things he has done, and fast for Lent, and celebrate on Easter, but do not share our bread with the hungry, and bring the homeless poor into our house, then it will be more tolerable for Chorazin and Bethsaida, and for Capernaum on the Day of Judgment, than for us. Jesus doesn't say these things to condemn the towns of Galilee, and we aren't reading them today to condemn ourselves. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. No, Jesus pronounces these warnings for the same reason that Jesus does anything, so that they and we might repent. So he follows his words of warning with words of direction and of invitation. Mm. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. With these words, Jesus affirms that it is by the Father's gracious will that he is here in Galilee, and not, say, over in Tyre and Sidon with the wise. And he directs his listeners' attention away from the mighty works themselves mm. toward the thing that they are meant to signify. When Jesus exercises, heals, and, pre and preaches, what he is revealing is not one cool trick for exercising demons, or ten ways your righteousness can surpass that of the Pharisees. What Jesus is revealing is the Father, whom he alone knows and can reveal. And when Jesus reveals the Father and proclaims the kingdom of heaven, he's not like a retail worker who sells us something, hands it over to us, and then says, have a nice day, never to be seen again. No, the Father is not separate from the Son. And the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is proclaiming is not something separate from his person. The thing Jesus gives us is himself. And the repentance he calls us to 
is more than just turning away from our sins. It is turning to him, to the one in whom alone we can find rest. And so Jesus invites his listeners and us, come to me. Come to me means bring yourself to me. Subject every part of your life to me, to the Father's gracious will revealed in me. Come to me means repent, for the kingdom of heaven is close at hand. Unless we come to him, unless we bring our whole selves to him, and let him change our whole lives, we cannot enter into that kingdom. Repentance is not cheap. In one sense, it is far from easy. Repentance demands everything of us. But it isn't for people who have everything already. Jesus' call is not addressed to the wise, the wealthy, the strong, the energetic. It is addressed to the weak, the overworked, and the weary. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. In the kingdom of the devil, of this world, of sin, our souls find no rest. They can't. We are creatures of God, made in his image, a part of his good design. So, of course, it is only when we live in relationship with him only when we come to him that we can find rest. When Jesus says, my yoke is easy, the Greek word there is krestos. When it's used to describe a tool for a servant, it means something like useful or well-suited to its purpose. A yoke is a piece of equipment that helps a pair of animals pull a cart or a plow, So imagine wearing a badly built yoke, a yoke that's not Crestos. It's bent out of shape. It doesn't fit your neck properly. It's heavy. It adds weight to what you're already pulling. It has splinters coming out of it. The animals under that yoke have to work extra hard to do their job because the equipment that is supposed to be helping them is hurting them. You never find rest pulling under that yoke because your labor never ends. That's the kind of yoke the Lord spoke about in Isaiah 58. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free? And to break every yoke? To be yoked under anything but Jesus' teaching, to serve any master but Jesus, is oppression. But Jesus' yoke is Crestos, easy. It fits well. It's comfortable to wear. It doesn't add extra weight. You still have to pull. To pull is to live. But under this yoke, pulling suddenly works the way it's supposed to. It feels easier. Because the yoke you're using is meant for this. The yoke is designed not to hurt you, but to help you. That's what Jesus' teaching is like. That's what the Father's will for you is like. That's what the kingdom of heaven in your life is like. And that's why Jesus, gentle and lowly in heart,
calls you to repentance. Because only in repenting can you accomplish the labor that is before you. Jesus calls you to repentance because only in repenting can you find rest for your soul. After saying all these things, Jesus does not give up on the Galileans. This happened after he was ministering in Galilee for six chapters, and for the next nine chapters of Matthew's Gospel, he continues to wander around Galilee, exercising, healing, teaching, calling disciples, and explaining things to them patiently. And even though we are as yet far from perfect in our repentance, Jesus will not give up on us. Jesus is close to you, calling you. Therefore, come to him. The kingdom of heaven is close at hand. Therefore, repent. Mm -hmm. 